Welcome to Bookin' It. Today's episode will be Tress of the Emerald Sea. everyone and welcome back to Booknet. I'm of course your eloquent host Cooper Cobbs and today I will be doing an awesome solo episode on Brandon Sanderson's Tress of the Emerald Sea. Typically you know I have my good friends Bryson, Tanner, and Isaiah joining me but today uh, it's just going to be me reviewing Tress of the Emerald Sea. We've got some scheduling going on. We have a spring break. I know it's really early the spring break this week so we couldn't record all together. I'd read this book. I think it'd be a fun one to do. Someone had asked us to do it as well so I thought it'd be just a fun little Still episode for me to do uh, as well. Um, so Brandon Sanderson, obviously a you know, very obscure uh, fantasy author. No, it's a joke. Uh, he's probably the most uh, prolific and <laughs> famous fantasy author writing today in the modern world. And this is one of his secret projects. So if you're not familiar, Brandon Sanderson a couple years ago had the most, uh, the biggest Kickstarter of all time in which he said he had written four novels that nobody knew, knew about. And by supporting his Kickstarter, he could get these and a bunch of other things successively. Of course, you could also buy the books not having supported the Kickstarter. And so that's what I did. I bought the book, uh, or actually got it as a gift um, for my birthday uh, without having uh, supported the Kickstarter. But this is the first of the secret projects to have been released. And it is probably one of the most well-received um, I haven't like done a whole lot of research, but people like it, and uh, I'm here today to do a review, and this is going to be a spoiler-free review, so if you are concerned about spoilers or plot points, don't worry. I'm going to give my over- overall thoughts. Uh, I'm going to reveal some stuff about maybe the world-building and characters, but not anything that like happens later on in the book, anything that's going to be a spoiler, anything like that at all. So please feel free to listen to it all the way through with no apprehension or uh, fear about me spilling spilling the beans. So uh, today, what I'm going to do is really just describe kind of what the book is going for, um, where it succeeded in that, and where it maybe fell short, maybe not even just falling short at what it was going for, but also the inherent limitations of what it was trying to do and things like that. But overall thoughts, it's great. It really is. I think that it's fantastic. I think that especially this kind of differs a little bit from what Mr. Sanderson normally tries to do. And if you're not familiar with, you know, the Secret Project story, Mr. Sanderson, I keep calling him Mr. Sanderson. Uh, well, just know that this is probably not the best introductory episode into, like, who he is and, like, what he does. In fact, you could probably listen to our old episode on Brandon Sanderson. I think it's, like, 100 and something, or maybe even, like, 98 or something, um, that we did just kind of reviewing him and doing an overall episode on his work. Um, but just know that he typically writes epic fantasy, giant worlds, giant magic systems with huge plots and things like that. But this one is much more of a fairy tale, um, and I loved it. But to, to, to kind of get a picture of what he's going for, I think the the best way to describe it is it's a modern version of The Princess Bride. Now, he actually makes that connection like in the very end of his book. Let's see if I can uh, pull it up here. It's in like, his acknowledgments at their postscript at the very end. So he said basically during um, COVID-19, he saw The Princess Bride and watched it with his family, and they really enjoyed it. And so he said that he wanted to write kind of a, a modern version of a fairy tale. So he said, I didn't want a fairy tale, but something adjacent. However, I also didn't want it to be too childlike. I wanted something my fans would enjoy, a grown-up fairy tale, so to speak. So he kind of describes that the book, The Princess Bride by William Goldman, who also wrote the screenplay for the movie, is basically the closest thing that he was going for. Um, but also, <laughs> this is what he says about watching the movie. The film holds up wonderfully, of course, though one thing has always bothered me. The princess, who the book and the film are both named after, just doesn't get to do much. 
My wife Emily noticed the same thing and mentioned after the film something along the lines of, what if the story had been like if Buttercup had gone searching for Wesley instead of immediately giving him up for dead? And that was my seed. And so that's kind of what the book is kind of conceived around. Basically, Tress goes after her long-lost love um, in the Princess Bride sort of fashion. So that's kind of like the basic plot structure as well, but also the, um, I don't know, the, the, the kind of wit that he's going for. So speaking of wit, the book is told, um, narrated by a character known as Hoyd, who also goes by Wit in one of his series. If you're not familiar with The Cosmere, which is Brandon Sanderson's universe in which most of his novels are in, so it's kind of a you know connected universe, uh, although it's better than like Marvel or anything like that. Um, so he appears in basically every single one of the Cosmere novels. So he's in the Mistborn series, he's in the Stormlight Archive series, he's in Elantris, he's also in Trust of the Emerald Sea. So at the same time, he is a character in Tress and the one who is telling the story. And so when I've kind of researched, like, okay, what are people saying in terms of criticism of this book? Basically, it either rides or dies on whether or not you like wit narrating it. Um, so he kind of brings the whimsical nature of it. He's very witty uh, as a narrator and tells a lot of jokes and things like that. But it's very, very much a modern fairy tale in the vein of the Princess Bride, but being told by this very witty um, narrator. Now, when I say modern Princess Bride, um, I mean that in a couple different ways. Firstly, in the fact that, like I said earlier, it's not a girl getting the guy, but it's you know girl trying to get the guy. Um, and it's not like if you're concerned about it being like feminist or ugly or I don't know things, things like that. It's not overly so. Like it's not he's not rubbing it in your face or anything like that. So it's very much it's very much not um, abrasive when it comes to that kind of thing. So in that sense, it's fine. Uh, but in the sense that also it's really it's really. I don't know how to describe it, but it's not classical. It's very much in the modern vein of fantasy. Brandon Sanderson is obviously, like I said, the most famous uh, modern-day fantasy author, and he's really done a lot to kind of shape what the genre looks like today in terms of these magic systems, which are more hard magic, which means the more science you can understand more. There's less mystery in terms of what these things can do. I mean, there are huge sections of his books, which are basically spent just trying to perform scientific experiments on how this magic works. Like the characters and the stories are trying to figure out how the magic works. Um, at the same time, though, in this modern fairy tale, there's a very cool magic system. And so it actually kind of works in that sense to where we have the old classical fairy tale being told um, by a narrator, but also a very cool magic system. So um, not, I won't give too much away, but the magic system is really involving these things called spores. They come down from the giant moons circling this planet, and they fill basically 12 seas of the planet. And these spores can do different things, but you can sail through them as well. Um, and you can sail through them, but also they're very dangerous. So if they can come into contact with water, you'll basically perform some dangerous thing and you can die. But it's really cool to see descriptions of the ships sailing through the seas. Most of the book takes place on ships sailing through um, the seas, the spores seas. And the closest thing to imagine is, I think he did a video with Mark Rober on this, but if you've ever seen that Mark Rober video where he liquefies sand, that's kind of what it looks like, is liquefying these spores, these giant dust mo mites kind of thing. Um, and But sometimes, you know, the liquefying stops, and so the ships get stuck in all these spores. But the spores also have these magical properties you can manipulate to launch cannons, fire guns, and, you know, basically use magic. So that's a lot of fun in terms of adding some flavor and character to the fairy tale, and it's very much a Sanderson take on um, a modern fairy tale. Now, I really did love it, though. I think the story is great. Um, you really love all the characters. Like, Tress is actually a really fun character. And uh, let me just read the opening line here. Um, in the middle of the ocean, there was a girl who lived upon a rock. This was not the ocean like the one you have imagined, nor was the rock like the one you have imagined. The girl, however, might be as you have imagined, assuming you imagined her as thoughtful, soft-spoken, and overly fond of collecting cups. 
And so it really follows Tress as she goes out to save her love as she, you know, basically jumps around on two ships, one ship mainly, though. It kind of wins the heart of the whole crew and basically enlists them all to go and save her her love while kind of trying to counteract the influence of the evil captain of the ship and some other foes who have entrapped her her love and things like that. So it's really, really a lot of fun in terms of just the story. Um, Tress is a great main character, is a great protagonist. She's lovable, likable, and like I said, it kind of follows the typical trope in a good way, though. In a good, in a good way, she follows the trope of the person who inspires everyone around them to kind of get, you know, lovingly manipulate them, if that makes any sense at all. But the side characters are also a ton of fun, in just terms of, um, you know, in terms of just their flavor, the the, the um, verve they provide to the story, like they're just really unique in terms of their oddities, but also they're all really likable. Like there's this character who can't speak, but writes on a tablet and has this cork where he's trying to basically trade things for you and just enjoys the trade. He's not trying to, um, you know, he, he anytime he offers you a favor or you offer him a favor, he expects it to be met, but it's his cool thing. Anyway, there are other characters who are noble. There's this character who wants to like fire cannons on the ship, but <laughs> can't see at all. And so she keeps missing by like miles. Um, it's a ton of fun though. That's a lovable side character named Huck, who is the main side character. He's a rat, and he's a talking rat, though, and provides a lot of fun banter for Tress. The villain is fun in terms of the main overarching villain and the little captain of the ship as well. And, of course, Hoyd, who is the narrator, also has an appearance as a character in the story, and he's a lot of fun. Sometimes it can be confusing, though, if, if Hoyd is narrating or, like, being part of the character or being a character in the story at first, so that's a little confusing, but also it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Um, so overall, it's really great. It's a ton of fun. It's a rip-roaring fantasy tale. Uh, it's, it's a fairy tale too, but it's told in kind of a modern way in terms of, you know, the girl going after the guy and in terms of the modern fantasy, um, rules being in place instead of kind of the more classical, um, you know, fairy tale version of it. Now, in terms of critiques, um, I think I just have a couple of critiques. Firstly is if you're going to compare this to The Princess Bride, which I think is fair, because he draws the comparison himself, and obviously, like, if you read it, and you've read The Princess Bride or seen the movie, it's pretty obvious that it's kind of in the same vein. I'd say that one thing The Princess Bride does better than Trust is that it's much better paced. So William Goldman is actually a pretty famous screenwriter. He's written, you know, obviously the screenplay for The Princess Bride, but also the screenplay for The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Um, actually, was that The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, or... I'm sorry, it was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So he's, he's a pretty famous, actually, Hollywood screenwriter. He's written several screenplays. And so when he wrote The Princess Bride, he's already very experienced in terms of pacing and, you know, getting things done. And so The Princess Bride is, like, perfectly paced, just the book is, in terms of action happening, in terms of exciting scenes, exciting characters, perfect dialogue, um, everything like that. But it, everything moves, like, so quickly, but it's you don't feel like you're moving quickly, if that makes sense. You're moving very, very fast, but at the same time, you're enjoying the ride, and you're not feeling rushed. And so when the opening scene, obviously, with Buttercup and Wesley works perfectly. You have the the sections where he kind of implants himself as a narrator, making fun of the book he's quote-unquote abridging, even though he's not really abridging it, um, which is kind of like the shell narrative of the story. Um, but also from Wesley being on the pirate ship to Buttercup being captured by Vizzini and all those people, and then Wesley trying to go save her, and then Wesley getting captured again, and Buttercup in the castle in the climax. All of it is perfectly paced. It's snappy. You're getting there fast. You're enjoying it. When it comes to Tress, I think that it really could have been shorter. Like, it's almost 500 pages long, <laughs> and it probably probably could have been a bit shorter. Now, obviously, he's not trying to do a short fairy tale. And in fact, The Princess Bride is pretty long in terms of page count, but it doesn't feel like it. It feels like a breezy, breezy ride. But I think Tress suffers from a little bit of bloating in the middle. In terms of the opening is awesome, just in terms of establishing the characters, 
establishing the relationship, establishing the world, all that is done pitch perfect. It's you love the characters, you buy the relationship, you like it, you buy the magic, you think it's a fun, cool world, and then when the exciting incident happens and Tress needs to go after her love who has been who disappeared um, and has been basically um, thought to be dead, you you buy her trying to go and rescue him. So all that is set up wonderfully. But once like the couple of things happen where she's on her way, that kind of stalls out a bit. She spends like I don't know, 250 pages or maybe more on this one ship trying to, um, you know, reach her goal. And so we spend a lot of time on that ship because that's really just, you know, what happens with the story. Like we're trying to get to this far off place and so need to travel there. Um, now that's good because we establish relationships, the characters you grow to love, um, you grow to love <laughs> during that part of the story. You buy the dynamic between her and the evil captain and, you know, her first mate, uh, the captain's first mate, who's also kind of bad. And so that's all good, but we spend a lot of time there. And there's not a lot that happens necessarily in terms of action and plot points. Now, she discovers a lot of things about the magic. She works out plans and things like that. But in terms of like pacing, it's kind of slow uh, during that. Now, it's still fun. It's still exciting. Um, it's, very, it's a very small critique. But in terms of you're comparing it to The Princess Bride, I think that the pacing lacks a little bit. Um, now, my other critique was near the very end, there are kind of like two scenes. Uh, one of them is the climax, which happens later. But the other scene is one of the scenes that really the book has been working towards for a long time, and it happens, it's kind of a, uh, I won't spoil it, but it, it, for me, it was kind of underwhelming, and I won't spoil like the scene itself, but for me, I was I read it, and I walked away, and I you know kept, read, kept reading, and I thought that something just didn't feel right to me about the scene. I don't know if it was like just not satisfying, or if it just didn't feel quite like it had reached the expectation of what the book was going for. Um, and I reread it again before um, recording on this, and I'm still not sure like what about it did it for me. I think that it really was supposed to kind of undermine your expectations about what was going to happen in it, um, and it was fun in that regard, um, and it was kind of a battle of words as well. Um, but at the same time, I don't know, like it felt too easy um, for Tress to get what she wanted. Um, it felt, I don't know, like uh, uh, an escape hatch for the author. I don't know if he like worked himself into a place and just couldn't quite get out of it. I don't know what it is. Um, and anyway, the scene that I'm talking about just didn't quite do it for me. And it was a scene that had been wor- we'd been working towards for a long time, like I said. And so it kind of felt underwhelming to me when we kind of reached the payoff of that. Um, now the climax though works great. It's a lot of twisting and turning. A lot of a lot of threads come together. And if you're familiar with Sanderson, you know that he loves to have these awesome climaxes. Climaxes where all the threads of the story just come together. And it's called the Sander Lynch. <laughs> so that's pretty pretty funny. And it, it really works here. It's not it's a it's not as massive as some of the other ones are, but that's fitting because it's a smaller fairy tale story. And so it works quite well. I think the climax is great. But in terms of the other scene, the other big payoff, I'm not sure that it quite worked for me. Um, but anyway, that's just a small critique as well. The other thing that, um, like I said earlier, kind of either makes you like or not like the story is the narrator. So Wit is the narrator, has a lot of fun. Uh, fun jokes, and uh, let me see if I can just pull up a couple here. Um, <laughs> okay, here, here's a joke as well. He was six and a half feet tall and had a jaw so straight and made other men question if they were. So <laughs> that's kind of a joke. He's, he's on, that one's kind of more of a, on the dirty side, obviously, but he is a, a very funny narrator, um, and he has a lot of funny wit, witty, witty jokes and sayings, and so it fits very well with the Princess Bride, Bride vibe, but also staying true to who the character is as well. So those are pretty fun. Now, my critique comes on the other half of it. So Wit, like I said, is a very fun narrator. I liked it. That way, the story worked for me. People who didn't like the book didn't really like his narration, kind of for the jokes. They kind of graded on them. But towards the end of the book, we kind of moved away from most of, mostly jokes 
do mostly philosophizing. So also Wit likes to have these observations about humans, about life, about things like that. He's very meta and breaks the, the fourth wall. He's referencing things that happened on Earth and pointing out observations about our world as well, like he knows we're on Earth reading a fantasy story. Um, but also he tends to provide musings about the way um, the world is. And sometimes these just don't don't work for me. I'll read two examples. Here's one. Memory is often our only connection to who we used to be. Memories are fossils, the bones left by dead versions of ourselves. More potently, our minds are a hungry audience, craving only the peaks and valleys of experience. The bland erodes, leaving behind the distinctive bits to be remembered again and again. Painful or passionate, surreal or sublime, we cherish those little rocks of peak experience, polishing them with the ever-smoothing touch of our cycled proxy living. In doing so, like pagans praying to a sculpted mud figure, we make our make of our memories the gods, which judge our current lives. So you can kind of see he's trying to provide like amusing some commentary on the world, on the way things are, on the characters themselves. And sometimes it works. Like there are some examples where it kind of works, but in those examples, really it's more funny <laughs> than actually true. And so here he's kind of, you know, and part of it is, I'm not really sure if we're supposed to laugh at this because he's obviously waxing poetic. He's going on, but I think really we're supposed to kind of wonder at how profound he's being of like, oh yeah, even though that's kind of funny philosophizing, he's actually right. And here's another example. And this one, I remember being like, okay, this one is, I just don't think it works for me at all. You might think this is an unfair moral problem to force upon a simple window washer. Um, Tress was a window washer before she left off, by the way. But there's a certain arrogance in that kind of reasoning. A window washer can think, same as anyone else, and their lives are no less complex. And, as I've warned you, simple labor often leaves plenty of time for thought. Yes, intellectuals and scholars are paid to think deep thoughts, but those thoughts are often owned by others. It is a great irony that society tends to look down on those who sell their bodies, but not on those who lease out their minds. And so you're kind of supposed to wonder at how profound he's being and how true the observation is. And sometimes, like I said, these work for me. Other times they don't. And especially as we moved on in the story and the pacing kind of slowed down and less action happened, um, then really these kind of started to grate on me as well. So Wit mostly worked for me, but also other times, you know, it didn't. And so 500 pages is a lot of time to spend with this narrator um, in terms of that. Um, but yeah. So that's kind of my review. That's my spoiler-free review of Trust of the Emerald Sea. I liked it. I give it a solid 8 out of, eight of 5, 8.5 out of 10. Um, it's very much a modern fairy tale. Um, and so it's part of me, you know, misses the Princess Bride, the classical fairy tale, and kind of the the old, old heroic virtue, kill the dragon, get the girl kind of story, which I enjoy a lot. But also, this is a, it's a good story in terms of understanding just, like, where the modern world is at in terms of storytelling, in terms of, like, its retroactive take on certain things like the Princess Bride kind of story, like fairy tales. And so it's very much, um, I don't know, a commentary too, like I said, on the old version of fairy tailing, on where we're at today with um, where the genre of fantasy is in terms of magic, in terms of worldview, um, and things like that. So it's a very informative read as well. Um, so that's kind of what you're going to get. But it's very fun. I enjoy it. The story has a happy ending. It works out in the end, um, and it's a lot of fun. So that's my review of Trust of the Emerald Sea. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Feel free to send in any thoughts. If you'd like me to talk about anything. And obviously, if people want me to, I can do a spoiler-filled review as well. But since none of the other guys have, I'm not really sure like how um, beneficial that would be, except it would allow me to get like greater specificity in terms of my critiques, especially with that one scene I'm talking about. Um, so probably not, but if you want me to, I definitely, definitely can. So, All right, well, with that, I'm going to read some of our patrons' names. Our patrons have supported us for $5 or more a month over at patreon.com forward slash booknet. And so in uh, reciprocation of our gratitude, I'm going to shout them out. So 
Thank you to Nana, Van Pappy and Wayla, Isaiah's grandparents, Moses and Zara, and Jenny and Uncle Sam, Mr. Mike and Miss Laura, Anna, Emily, Keenan, Howdy, Jenny, or <laughs> my mom, I should say, Mrs. Hall, Will, and Kara. Thank you all so much for your support. If you'd like to support us, head over there. Or you can check out our website at 412podcasting.com or Instagram at at bookingitpod to connect with us, um, to subscribe to our newsletter at our website as well, and yeah, all fun things. So thank you guys for listening to that. I know I talk fast. I apologize, especially when I'm solo. I tend to go at like 180 words per minute. But hey, that means you don't have to listen to your podcasts at 1.5 speed like I do. <laughs> so um, anyway, hope you guys enjoyed that. I really enjoyed reading this book. I enjoy sharing my thoughts with you guys. Feel free to send any comments or feedback. Love to answer and rock with you guys. So until next time, keep on booking.